Welcome to another episode of Blindness No Barrier, a memoir of David Blythe. I am John Coleman and this is the third of a series of interviews focusing on different aspects of the remarkable life of David Blythe. It will cover the key aspects of David's life that made him the person that he is, with a particular focus on the pivotal role David played in the development of human rights for people with disabilities, both in Australia and worldwide. The episodes are produced by myself and edited by Robert Love. The music is by the very talented Jeff Irvin, and I appreciate the support of Blind Citizens Australia in the promotion of this memoir. David, we finished last time with your um, time in Brisbane and um, a, a significant uh, change in life moving down to Melbourne. So we're just beginning to introduce that part of your life and the shift down to Melbourne. Um, I was wondering, would you like to recap a little bit about the reasons for the move and I suppose what a little bit about your hopes for um, your new life in Melbourne? Yes, John. Um, I decided to come to Melbourne after meeting some Victorians in a blind cricket carnival in Queensland. I'd... Um, I had made a decision that I was going to leave Queensland. Uh, there didn't seem to be many opportunities for me there. My original intention was to go to Perth because I've always had a fear of the cold in the south. However, uh, several of the Victorians convinced me to come to Queen, uh, Melbourne to uh, play blind cricket for a year and uh, then see what happens. Well, I came to Melbourne <coughs> for one year and here I am 58, 59 years later still here. Now this is 1957 that you 1957, made the move. 1957, yes. Yeah. So I was, I had every intention of asking you about the cold. That's <laughs> a huge shift. You're going from one end of the country to the other, and um, I imagine you wouldn't have come across a winter anything like what Melbourne had to offer for you. The winter in 1957, to me, was probably the coldest time I've ever been in my life. I don't think I got out of an overcoat for the whole of that winter, and. Uh, I, I really found it difficult to manage it, but I had decided to um, stay for another year, and uh, I did, and I have never regretted it. And what else would you say was difficult about that adjustment, it, moving away from people you knew, moving into a new accommodation? That's a lot of changes. Um, I know when you're a bit younger, you can roll with those changes, but that still seems to be quite a challenge. Well, I had relations in Melbourne. I lived with an aunt of mine and I was very good friends with her youngest son uh, and we spent a fair bit of time together. I, um, the change was brought about, I think, another case of where I was um, rejected, for the want of another word, uh, when I applied to the RBIB, the Blind Institute here, for a job, uh, they just told me to go back to Queensland. Each state should look after their own. Well, that sort of rankled me a little bit and uh, I determined not to do that. It took us four months before the Blind Workers' Union were able to make enough representations to get that overturned. So can I clarify there? 
The RVIB was saying that you were actually not eligible to work in the sheltered workshop that they ran um, because you were um, moving from another state. Yes, that's correct. That was the general attitude of all the states at that time. You will recall earlier I mentioned the experience with the school in Adelaide. The same thing applied to the workshops in Brisbane. And uh, again, it happened here in Melbourne. These are landmarks, I think, in my life that have made me think about things the way I do. I was able to, after four months uh, being out of work, I was able to get a job and uh, I started work at the RBIB in April in 1957 and I worked there until 1965. Well, good on the Blind Workers Union <laughs> for, um, for taking up your case. Um, do you think your previous involvement with the union um, up in Brisbane um, gave you that sort of association with the union that made them more inclined to see your point and to, um, to push for a bit of change? I'm sure it did. Um, they knew the um, representatives from Queensland who had been going to conferences with them, so I had recommendations from all of those people uh, that uh, I was a reasonable person. And uh, I had had experience on the committee in Brisbane of the Blind Workers Union up there. And I think at the time too, the Blind Workers Union here in Victoria were having some difficulties with management. And this was just another thing that they brought to their bow and uh, they, they fought that issue and, and won it for me. Do you have, do you, can you recall what sorts of things they might have been struggling with management over? Mostly over wages. Um, wages weren't very high. Uh, they were better than Queensland. Most of the workers worked on piecework. There was a base rate, which was, at that time, I'd say about 70% of the basic wage. And um, then you did piecework on top of that if you wonder if you could reach a certain target. So there was always debates over the rates and some of the other working conditions they had... Uh, it was a very old factory and heat was a major problem here in the summer, although I didn't notice much of it the first year <laughs> I was here. Um, and issues like that and better conditions. I think at that time was about the time when unions and organisations like that were starting to flex their muscles a bit and saying to management, well, we're just not going to take it anymore. And uh, especially in an organisation like the RVIB, they have uh, a board of management which is elected well, it was supposed to be, but they they were officially elected. And uh, there were issues there about blind people being represented on the board. These were all issues that were bubbling to the surface about that time. So, David, you've explained that you're out of work for the first four months um, until the Blind Workers' Union is able to sort of succeed in their efforts to get um, those changes. Um, that seems to me like a difficult time in terms of um, income and um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit um, about how you managed. At that time I had the blind workers pension, uh, blind persons pension which I'd got in 1955 when it was um, taken off the means test because up till then I wasn't eligible to receive that pension because I had received some compensation for my blindness although I wasn't able to access that money until I was 25 years of age, so 
but the Social Security people said I had money, so therefore I couldn't have a pension. So when I came to Melbourne, I, that's what I had, and I lived with a relative at the time, and um, we managed that way. I, um, In that time, another relative uh, was in charge of the real production at Kodak, the camera people, and uh, I was given an opportunity to get a job there. There was a person retiring. I went out and had the test and it was shown that I could do the job. And in those days, of course, each of the departments used to employ their own people at Kodak. There wasn't a central employment section. But the RBIB had an arrangement with Kodak that blind people could work there in their dark room. And that was the only work they did do at Kodak. And that RBIB would be the people who would recommend them. Well, when I got offered this job, I told the people at the Blind Workers' Union that I was getting this job so I wouldn't have to go to RBIB. And, of course, the word got around and RBIB heard about it and uh, their placement officer went to Kodak and objected to the fact that I hadn't gone through the RBIB. Well, I didn't get the job and nobody else got that job either who was blind. So That's an unbelievable story. Well, that's how things were in those days, that, uh, you know, the agencies thought they owned people, and that was part of that, what I say about the states supposed to look after their own, and well, there were very strange ideas that people had when we look back on them, but at the time we took it for granted that that's how things were. I think that in itself, because the Blind Workers' Union were quite angry about that, uh, probably was one of the catalysts that made them relent eventually to give me the job. Well, I, they really should have been ashamed, absolutely ashamed. And um, uh, it's good that um, at least some some flexibility or consideration came out of that. The um, the other thing I was interested about is your connection with your friends and the cricket. I mean, the, it was the cricket, the cricketers who drew you down. It was the cri- partly the cricket. Um, did that? Did that play out for you as you as you thought it might? Well, uh, again, I was told when I came to Victoria, I think I came to play for the wrong team, actually, and uh, the management of the cricket at the association at the time uh, brought in, they said they had a rule that you had to have three months qualification before you could play for anyone in Victoria. I don't know why they stamped that up, because no one had ever transferred from one state to another before. Uh, we eventually got that overruled. What sort of qualification? Residential. Oh. And uh, so that was eventually overruled, and I played for the Braille Cricket Club for a number of years after that. We were the um, the, the dark horse in the uh, blind cricket. We were a pretty successful team, but we were also a bit of a rebel. So most of us were young, and uh, some of the older people who ran blind cricket at that time didn't like the way we did things. They really didn't make Victoria did not make you welcome did they David the um there no. must have been some consideration that look forget this mm. I'm packing my stuff up and I'm mm. going back the when you're hitting blocks everywhere uh and it, everything's new that's that's got to be in your mind doesn't it 
Oh, it went through my mind to go back to Queensland, but I, I had made the decision I was leaving Queensland, so I wouldn't have gone back there. If I'd have gone anywhere, it probably would have been to Western Australia, and and I suppose I would have got another roadblock over there. I don't, well, it I'll sounds never, like you might have. I, yeah. don't, I never know because I didn't do it, but no, I became determined, I think, that I was going to stay in Victoria. Uh, I liked it here. The I liked Melbourne as a city. I liked the way people reacted to me down here. I, I got on very well with people where we lived in that area. There were a lot of old... My family had friends there. I had relations in various parts of Melbourne who I'd go and visit. Uh, the cricketers, even though I wasn't playing, I used to go to the cricket and uh, met up with the guys afterwards, so we had a good relationship there. There were a lot of good things happening uh, around me at that time, just that the employment situation was getting a bit tight. So you were sitting at the cricket... Mm as a as an observer yeah you couldn't grab a bat you couldn't grab a ball you just had to sit there because you were from the wrong state it's it's a farce isn't it it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It, that's that's if it wasn't sad it would be funny well it, it uh, i think it changed a lot of things because other people came after that and people went from victoria to other states and didn't have any trouble i, I think some of the things that happened to me highlighted um, the ludicrousy of the way issues were at the time and uh, now you know we nowadays we look back on those things and think well it was archaic but that's how it was but we i think i can take some credit that i broke some of those barriers well clearly <laughs> the um alrighty so you've four months in you managed one of the barriers you managed to break was the resistance to have you in the workshop so perhaps um you can tell us a little bit about what the workshop was like in those days and also um, where you started what the work that you were doing I was a map maker because that's what I had learned in Queensland so um, I made uh, doormats uh, on a rod loom uh, I did so I started off actually doing the binding of the mats which was very hard work on your hands but um, I had to do that eventually I became a, on the on the loom themselves make uh, manufacturing mats and I became a piece worker because I was young and fit so I could produce reasonably well and uh, I became part of the Blind Workers Union all these things came together at that time and uh, we worked um, as I said on piecework. it was hard uh, particularly in the summer it uh, was very hot and uh, it was probably a good job in the winter because you got warmed up, but uh, it wasn't a good job in the summer. No. Dusty and dirty work, working oh, very, on the mats? Very dusty and very dirty. Um, the coir fibre we used to, uh, we brought in from India was pretty awful. And uh, we had to bring that out and twist it and then make the mats. Now, these mats are like um, foot, you know, they're like outdoor um, doormats. Doormats, that's what I was yeah. thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're not the sort of mats, they're not design mats that you would have on the floor in the middle of your living room or something like that. No, they were what we call a coir mat. Uh, most people had them at their front door, on the front door of the buildings. There was two ways of making those mats. One was on the rod loom and the other was on what they called a frame. And the frame ones was the ones you could put a design in them. You could put the logo of a company or a name and that in those, but I never made those. They were mostly made by people who had some sight because it was quite intricate work. Mm. 
But uh, I know I was on the rod loom and uh, we worked on those. Okay, so how quick, how, how much time did it take you to put together a mat? It depended on the size you were making. If we were doing number fives, you'd probably make three, maybe four a day. Uh, number five might be a standard household that doormat? Would, no, that was the big one. That'd was be, it? That would be uh, a metre by two-thirds of a metre. Ah, OK. The, the number one, which was the smaller one, which was 18 inches, which is, what, about half a metre? Um, no, it's not half a metre, sorry. 18 inches by a metre, uh, by a foot... Uh, we used to make things, we'd make six or seven of them a day. And you had to do that to make the piece work. Uh, you probably had to make five a day before you got any money. Uh, and then after that, the next two or three would make the good dollars for you, or pounds as it was in those days. And uh, they're different sizes. And it was difficult because it was harder to make the money on the number ones than it was on the number fives because they were bigger and... Uh, they were not quite as tightly packed. So, but it was hard work, physically hard work, um, mm. but we did it. I, I number number the older guys I saw there uh, who were on rod looms making runners, They uh, those guys would go home on a Friday night and wouldn't move out of their seat for the whole weekend because their backs and everything were just so oh, full of right? RSI yeah. and uh, terrible and people would work, you know, 30 and 40 years doing that developed a lot of bad conditions with backs and wrists and yes yeah I can imagine and uh, so uh, I was very pleased when I eventually got out of that the other thing I was wondering I mean you'd explained that from your injuries Mm. uh, initially you had no dexterity in your hands whatsoever you're now in a role where it's very much about using your hands and using it moving as quickly as you can had that completely had your hands completely freed up or were you still limited from the injury oh they were 90 percent freed up Um, that mostly came in when i was working in queensland and doing the cane work Um, i used to have to twist them a lot and bend and that match you didn't have a lot of use for their fingers and that um, because you had a, a rod which went across had a groove in it and you sliced the the matting all the way through it you just keep adding in and slice it, add it and slice it. With the cane work, uh, the Thailand in Queensland gave me more of the dexterity with my hands and the rod looms helped me to build the strength in my hands. I think also playing sport helped in that regard too, playing cricket and uh, those things. I was using my hands more, so therefore they were become stronger. Perhaps for context, it might be uh, nice to hear about what the RVIB or the Royal Victorian Institute for the Blind was in those days. I mean, it's now amalgamated into a much larger organisation, but um, just what it was that they offered um, and um, where you actually, where the workshop was located. Well, the workshop I worked in was in Mowbray Street, Paran. On that site, you had a very big blue stone building, which was a, a residential school that was still there when I first came to Melbourne and they had a very small audio library with a huge big cassette books that we used to read and they also had discs for reading books but very limited number and they had a transcription service where they transcribed uh, material into braille for students. That was all there was uh, and it was all on the one site 
a number of years later, probably about three years later, they actually built the new school out at Burwood and that freed up that main building in the front, which in about 1959-1960 became a residential rehabilitation centre, which was the only one we ever had in Victoria. And it only lasted for about five years and then they closed it. Oh, okay. You mentioned that you joined the uh, Blind Workers Union, so I imagine you probably signed up pretty much the day you started work. Um, You told me that um, from there, there were some particular uh, significant episodes that occurred in your time at the workshop. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about those. Well, during my time at RVIB, I was a member of the Blind Workers Union. I became a member of its committee pretty early on. I became its president. Uh, I was a delegate to the Trades Hall Council. I I never was a delegate to the ALP. Um, I wasn't an abbot with the ALP in those days after my experiences in Queensland. Uh, But um, I, I was a delegate to the Trades Hall Council and I was very strong on the attitudes of workers. We had uh, a number of experiences where we had to call on the Trades Hall Council to help us in negotiations we had with management. The late Mac Jordan, who was the Secretary of the Trades Hall Council at the time, was a a particular friend to the Blind Workers' Union. And uh, Albert Monk from the ACTU and Harold Souter, both from the ACTU, were very strong supporters for blind workers. So we did have some good support around us. It didn't always help us, but it, it certainly didn't hinder us. We had, um, but we had to play our part. I used to go to the Trades Hall Council meetings once a week and uh, sit there, and we had some interesting experiences there. Um, one of them was uh, at the time, whenever an atomic bomb was let off as a test, the Trades Hall Council representative or Secretary Mick Jordan would move the automatic motion of condemnation. It would get seconded and it would be passed without any discussion really. But uh, when China let their first one off, well, things changed. And uh, I can already remember the late Laurie Carmichael, who was probably one of the best orators I've ever heard. He spoke and he got really wound up. And in the end of his speech, he said, instead of condemning them, we should use it to drop it on BHP, (laughs) which brought the house down. This is because of his own politics. Oh, he, he would have been um, a Maoist himself. Oh, very strong, very yeah. strong. The um, At that time, you had about five versions of the Communist Party and they were all represented at the Trades Hall Council, plus all, all the various segments in the Labor Party. At that time, the DLP had come into play. Uh, so in that time, it was a pretty volatile time in Australian politics and... Um, I mean, we'd had all these years of Liberal governments, uh, but from 1949 right up till eventually 1972. So, you know, there was a lot of um, hard feelings at times about things, but we had to deal with all those. Another time at the Trades Hall, I, I received a phone call from Mick Jordan asking me to come into a disputes committee, General Motors Holden. There was a big strike there. We had 14 members at General Motors, and I was a the Blind in, Workers Union. Did. Yes. And so these are like, it's like an enclave yeah. of the Blind Workers Union operating in the fact in the car factory. Well, we had an arrangement with the unions that they could remain members of the Blind Workers Union and be seen as part of the union operations in those workshops. 
So we got called in, I got called in, and uh, I was a bit embarrassed, you know. We had 14 members, there's the vehicle builders <laughs> there, had 33,000. Yeah, you weren't the biggest player in the room, were you? No, and there was another union had over 3,000, another one had 1,500, and you know, I'm sitting there with 14. <laughs> and then it came out, there was there were seven unions involved, and uh, the next one after that, he had seven members, and one had five, and the other one had one. Ah. And all of a sudden, I thought, well, I'm not such a small player after all. That's right, you're a about the middle <laughs> but uh i'd said to mick jordan you know what do you want to do you know i said we he said we want to get them back to work he said this strike is a bad strike it was called by the shop stewards that the union management never had control of it and they've got to get them back to work so they can get the negotiations straightened out so anyway the big debate went on the actu president was there albert monk and uh, this debate went on i'd say it must have went on for about four hours and uh, there was some very hard name calling going on. I'm just sitting there. I didn't say a word. I was, well, I was in the big league here, and I didn't know what to do. So a vote came, and uh, and of course they voted along the table. And unfortunately, I was at the end. And uh, so the the vehicle builders union said go back to work. The amalgamated uh, engineers said go back to work. And the other big unions said go back to work. So it's three nil. Then the seven member one said no, stay out and strike. And the next one said stay out and strike. And the last one who was the the blacksmith union, he only had one member, but he said no, stay out and strike. And so it came to me. You were the deciding vote. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And I said uh, go back to work. And this guy who was sitting next to me, but from the blacksmith here, I thought he was going to hit me. He was so angry. Is that right? And he was yelling in my face that I was a scab. <laughs> oh, oh, God, I got a, a real hammering, you know, by yeah. this guy. And uh, anyway, uh, and, and you know, and because uh, what I actually said was when they asked me what I'd vote, I said, well, 14 members don't tell 33,000 members what to do. I support go back to work. Yeah, quite right. You know, and... Uh, so that was that was an interesting experience. I got driven home by the Assistant Secretary of the Trade Hall Council and he said, David, he said, have you could see the look on your face? <laughs> <laughs> he said, you didn't know what to do, did you? I said, I didn't have a clue. I thought he was going to hit me. He said, so did I. He said, <laughs> and he tell you what, if he had of he would have had a bloody big glass ashtray right across his head because I had it in my hand. Is that right? <laughs> the, I'm interested because you've, talked about these people these yeah. prominent names yeah. from the union movement of yeah. the time yeah. they're orators they're debaters mm. they're political activists do you think that working alongside these people was a training ground it was a it was a environment where you could learn meeting skills um, political skills negotiation speaking skills all of those things, John. And the other thing I learned too is that um, it wasn't always their life. Uh, they they were able to use other parts of their lives to more or less normalise their lives. That was a very hotbed in that trades hall at the time. You know, we, we it was a very angry area in time in Australia. The Vietnam War was on. All these things were happening, and. Uh, you know, but these guys could turn off that, and uh, I think of Laurie Carmichael. He he grew roses, and you could sit down and have a talk to Laurie, and he'd tell you about his roses. I mean, I didn't have a clue what the rose, what sort of rose was, which, but you just hear this guy talking about them with the passion, and 
and that and you think that's not the same guy I heard out there before berating the world. <laughs> you know, but it, that, uh, they were all like that. J.J. Uh, Brown from the Railway Union, he used to go into the gymnasium with the blind um, members of the... Uh, they had a gymnasium at the uh, Railway Institute. And he used to go in there and do skipping competitions for people like Charlie Bradley and that, who were blind people who held world records as skippers. And uh, see, they... They all had a life besides their public life, and uh, it was, they were great people, and they taught me a lot. Uh, I learned a lot from them, and uh, I, I think it's held me in good stead for the rest of my life. Sure, sure, I can very much imagine. Mm. The um, there was another organisation that you mentioned that you'd been uh, connected with through the Blind Workers Union, uh, through the Blind Workers Union. The Australian Federation of Organisations of the Blind, is that right? Yes, um, we call it AFOB. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that's a lot easier to say than what <laughs> I just said. That's correct. It was the national body. It had been in being since 1911. It held its first conference. It was made up originally of the Blind Workers' Unions in Western Australia, South Australia, Victoria and Queensland, plus the Blind Persons Association of New South Wales and the QML in Queensland. They were the people that were in it and they, they were all organisations. They used to have a conference every two years, to which we used to travel by train, I might say, <laughs> everywhere from Perth to Brisbane and down so to Hobart. Five days across to Perth? Oh, nearly, yeah. Just about, yeah. yeah and. Uh, but we did that and because you didn't think of anything different. That's how it was. That's how you did things. Um, and that was a, an organisation. I went to my first conference in 1963. Uh, we took a motion from Victoria to establish an Australian Institute for the Blind, which probably came out of my experiences of being rejected in so many states. And uh, it was soundly defeated. <laughs> Uh, mainly because I think in those days state jealousy still existed. Uh, it was very difficult if you came from Victoria to get anything accepted by South Australia and Queensland always seemed to go with South Australia. Western Australia and the Victorians got on well. We had a bit of support from New South Wales at times, but not always. The state borders were very prominent in people's thinking. The, uh, <coughs> Can you tell me what is the difference between the organisation as it was, and what it was that you were pro- proposing. What was difficult, uh, different or so well, revolutionary w- about well, that? Well, I wondered that any blind person in Australia could go anywhere in Australia and, and have an education or a job, the same as any other person in Australia could, and I didn't see why blind people shouldn't be able to. And the concept at that time <coughs> was that agencies were all charitable agencies, other than the one in Queensland, which was only a workshop. Um, uh, so that was the thinking we had at the time, that maybe this was the way that we could free up and let blind people have the mobility that other people had in the, in the country. And uh, if you wanted to move, you should be able to. Um, it wasn't accepted uh, um, because the other states said, no, no, I think they all thought we'd all go to Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> you suggested to me um, that Part of the resistance was that Victoria was seen as coming up with the changes, coming up with proposals that, you know, those things should be like this and like that. So they were seen as perhaps um, 
the ones that um, that were looking to change things and make things different for the other states and that there was a resistance there? Oh, there was very strong resistance. Um, Victoria was, Victoria really the idea state. Um, Victoria wanted to make change. We, we didn't want to just continue on the same way we'd been going for 100 years. Um, we, we wanted to see blind people more emancipated into the community. We wanted to see different types of work being done in the workshops. We, we supported the workshops, but we saw the workshops as just another form of employment that uh, we should be able to work more in open industry. I think Victoria probably had more people working in open industry than any other state. Maybe New South Wales had as many. I, I don't know too much about that. Queensland, Western Australia, South Australia had virtually nobody. Um, and uh, Tasmania had virtually nobody. So, you know, there was big issues there and Victoria was sort of pushing the barrel a bit on that. I think also the major agency here, the RVIB, um, it it was seen as much more progressive than some of the others. Um, it paid better wages, um, it had better conditions, um, and it was also looking into rehabilitation as something different. So yeah, there was a lot of, you know, heartache around about it. Uh, but, you know, people were very parochial and uh, that's how it was. Uh, and it took us a long it took us a long time to get over that and I don't think we're totally over it even yet that there's still state jealousies and <coughs> issues that come up from time to time. Not only in the blindness field, in all fields actually. You, you only have to hear a COAG meeting in the federal government and you'll know there's some differences between the states. There certainly is <laughs> and that, that certainly comes up, yeah. comes around yeah. every year. Yeah. David, I understand in this um, time at the workshop that you became more involved uh, with the Blind Workers Union, um, took on uh, greater responsibility. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes, I served several positions on the board of um, Blind Workers Union Victoria. I then became president for a number of years. We had a lot of negotiations with management. It was in that time that a lot of the, the working conditions changed. Um, we went into food packaging, sugar packaging and food packaging, and we were able to negotiate an award wage for those jobs. Um, uh, we got the manufacturing, uh, manufacturing grocers award as a payment. So we worked shift work in those days. We worked from six in the morning till three in the afternoon and from three in the afternoon till ten at night. Can I just take you back a little bit there? Yeah. That that achievement of um, getting award wages for workers, that you were still within the factory itself. You weren't located at another factory. But the um, that that seems to me that that's a really a major change in terms of even what is thought of as a sheltered workshop? Well, it was um, um, a very big change at that time. We did have support from the Trades Hall Council on on that issue because we were actually taking a job on there that would normally have been done in in open industry and um, we were able to negotiate that if we were going to do that sort of work we should be paid the wage that other people were doing. So the only other people who were making mats were in uh, Pentridge Prison, so it was pretty hard to work an award out with them. 
Um, and so this was a case where we were actually competing against private industry and uh, we were able to argue that case with the support of the Trade Hall Council. And was that a big refit for the factory to enable them to be able to do that job? Yes, we had a, a quite a big area that was used as a storage area for uh, raw materials and finished goods and we were able to set up in there, um, we had two, two machines doing food packaging and we had four machines doing sugar packaging and uh, they could fit comfortably in that big area. So uh, the cost must have been pretty high to set it up and uh, we had uh, probably 70% blind people working and 30% sighted on those jobs because there were some jobs where you needed a sighted person like driving a forklift. Uh, some of the clerical work which had to be done was done by sighted people although later on we got vision impaired people into those jobs. And so it was a good training program for a number of us who went from there into open industry, actually, and uh, it, it was one of the better step forwards that RVIB did make, and in that line that I was saying that they were sort of leaders in Australia. Following on from then, South Australia actually took up a, a thing called blister packaging. They put in machines to do that. They'd come over and seen how the food packaging was working here. There wasn't enough work in South Australia for food packaging for them to start that. So they, they went in and found blister packaging. Uh, other states went and found other things that I don't think... No, they didn't really. It was only those two states that really found something different. Did that create... Um jealousies within the workshop like you still have the people doing the piecework on what I imagine would be comparatively significant less wages and then you had those other staff probably doing what might have been seen as the uh, the prestige positions a little bit I think uh, though see the traditional trades the cane work had finished there wasn't any more basket makers um, the broom making was significantly reduced and eventually went out of existence. They all got beaten by mechanisation and uh, even the mat making. It became obvious that we were paying more for our yarn from India than uh, you could buy the, the completed mat in Myers, which was made in India out of the same material and sent over here. And, Myers could sell it cheaper than we could buy the raw material, so it wasn't going to be long before we're out of that business. So um, those things were all changing, and assembly work came in, packaging and assembly, and that didn't pay a good wage. It was paying probably about 70% of the award. It was very difficult to get that wage up because it was low-cost um, product, um, and we weren't competing against anyone else except another sheltered workshop. So, so it really um, we didn't have much of a bargaining chip. So, uh, what what position did you hold within that um, food processing section? Well, in the food processing, we uh, I became a supervisor after some time. Uh, the supervisor we had left, and he was a sighted person. I took over as supervisor, convinced the management that I could do it, and. Um, I did that for about 18 months until it closed down when um, CSR put in a machine that could do everything we did uh, with 
probably eight people on a line, this man, one machine could do that and it would do what we'd do in a day in about half an hour. So mm. <laughs> we went out of business there. No, you've got no hope. You, you know, hope, and that was it. And, uh, the, um, the position as supervisor, was that the first time that somebody who was blind or vision impaired within that uh, factory uh, took on a management role? No, um, there was another guy who'd been in charge of the women's brush um, department uh, when they made the brushes. Um, he was there for a number of years before me. Uh, I think I would have—I've been the first totally blind one ever to get a responsible position like that. Um, and why do you think that they—they they took you on in that role? Like you said, you convinced them. Um, but do you think that they had already seen in your role at the factory uh, um, uh, leadership skills? We had a chap there at the time called um, Red Sturgeon. He was he came from um, API, the big um, plastic manufacturing company. That's a great name, David. That that yeah, it should be a detective in a <laughs> in a crime crime novel uh, he he uh, he was the man that was brought in to set up all these trades and that and he had no preconceived ideas about blind people he'd never met a blind person in his life and uh, he was a very good man to work with i worked with him as president of the union and i got to know him pretty well and when the, the role came up i i went to him and discussed the issue of that i'd like to be given the opportunity to try it out he said, well, he said, you can have a go at it. He said, uh, I'll give you a couple of weeks here you go if you if you manage it well and good. So uh, I went back and I told the, the troops that uh, I was going to take over as supervisor. And uh, it was up to us as a group whether I succeeded or not. And uh, that was it. And they, I think everyone pulled a little bit harder and we made it. And mm. uh, so I got the job and... Uh, because I'd been a very strong advocate for all of them all the way through, so there was no hassles there. What about the other staff? Like, even though you said there was another uh, fellow who had mm. taken on a, mm. a more senior role, the I can imagine that um, within the staff at the factory, some of those people would have seen that there was a clear delineation. That oh, the they sighted were. people mm. were in charge, the blind people did the manual labour. And to see that being broken down, that might have been quite a challenge. Well, it was, in a way, um, the guy that was in charge of the food packing area, as distinct from the sugar, he was a new guy, so he had no preconceived ideas either. He'd been brought in from open industry. Uh, he had no history of um, the delineation between blind and sighted, and there was a big delineation between them. Even the guys that worked... There was um, sort of labourers like we were who got paid award wages. They were cited. They always saw themselves as a bit better. Um, some of them were resentful. There was no doubt about that. But of course, we didn't have any meetings of management in those days. Um, you know, the only management meeting I had was with the boss, and uh, the supervisors didn't get together and have discussions about anything. I suppose a few of them did as mates, but uh, I wasn't part of that. And those of us in the new areas weren't part of that. The old traditional ones probably were. One guy came there as a supervisor. He'd been a supervisor at um, Pentridge Jail. He had some funny ideas to start with, but eventually he came round. He became a very strong supporter of the social club with the blind workers there. So, Is that right? Yeah, so, you know, I think we broke down a lot of barriers uh, in, in that time. 
um, it was a it was a it was a time of change, and a lot of those old guys went, and new people came in, and they didn't come in with preconceived ideas. Mm. Mm. Now, it wasn't long after you moved to Melbourne uh, that you met somebody called Jess. Yes, and I think um, I think we need to introduce her into this story. Well, Jess was um, she worked in the women's brush making area. She's vision impaired, she had what we'd call a good partially. Um, I was um, at that time training for swimming. Um, I thought I might take up swimming as a bit of a, a sport, and I was training in the Richmond Baths and. Um, I was training very hard one day, and I banged my hand against the end of the end of the lane and dislocated a couple of fingers. Ouch! And uh, so that meant I was either couldn't go to work or they give me light duties. So they gave me light duties, and at that time, Jess was in charge of an area we call the Blue Room, which was where the first lot of assembly was started. So I was up there working for her. And, um, I invited her to go out one night, and the rest is history. Yeah, but we need to hear that history. <laughs> uh, when I first met Jess, um, I liked her. She was um, she was in charge actually, and um, she was a little bit bossy. But uh, I, I think she was one of those people that she had a bit of humour about her. Um, she was a caring person because she did care quite a lot for some of the people that were working there who were, had disadvantages other than vision impairment. Um, but. Uh, you know, we got talking and I invited her out. And she said, oh, well, you can walk me home if you like. And I thought, oh, that sounds a good idea. She said, oh, God, she was a cub mistress at the time, so she was doing cubs that evening. And they finished at around about 6.30, 7 o'clock. And so I, I met her at 7 o'clock. And uh, we walked and we walked and we kept walking. I thought, Where do you live? And she said, I live in Hawthorne. Well, from Paran, I would say it had to be the best part of five or six kilometres. <laughs> and uh, I walked, walked her home and uh, met her mother and uh, caught the bus and went home and thought to myself, that wasn't the smartest thing I've done in my life. But I think back when I look at it, it probably was one of the best things I've done in my life because it's... we got to know one another, we talked to that, and and it was... Uh, and we'd done that quite often after and during our courtship that we, I'd meet her after cubs and we'd go and just walk home. Because in those days you didn't go and have a coffee in a coffee shop or anything. It just, you didn't do those things, you know. You just went home and had a cup of tea there. So we did that and then um, we, as I said we got married. We, uh, I went and had dinner with the one the first night. We really had a date and um, went to Carol by candlelight and uh, we moved on from there. But... I knew that um, she was the sort of person that I could make a life with and uh, she must have thought the same thing about me uh, and we've been together ever since. Well, it sounds to me like she thought the same thing very quickly because if, if she was happy for you mm-hmm. to walk her, mm-hmm. what, an hour and a half? Oh, at least that. <laughs> <laughs> All the way back to her place in Hawthorne mm-hmm. and say, mm-hmm. say to mum, look, mm-hmm. this is the chap. Mm-hmm that uh, has just walked me well mm. I would have thought mum would work out something was going on pretty quickly her mother was a lovely old lady actually um, a nana as we always knew her as the children that's what they called her um, she was a woman who had a very very hard life uh, she'd raised seven children and um, been share farming all their lives and um, she'd had a very hard life and uh, 
I, I admired her very much and um, it was quite obvious that she might have been part of the influence to me that made me think that Jess might be the same. Yes, And mm-hmm. yep. about June, I think it was, um, I said to her, there's a house for sale in Moorab and we'd like to get married. And she said, yep. So she paid the deposit and... As she says, I've paid ever since. It's it's very practical, but that, that's not the most romantic proposal I've ever heard. It, it's not exactly I can't live without you or you are the one and true love of my life, but rather there's this house available down the street. Um, well, but think, it worked, so it's a good pitch. I think it was pretty. we were pretty serious about the fact that we would be marrying, uh, you know, without having discussed it really, but... Uh, no, I just, this um, house became available. And it was an area that I knew. It had a bus going past the door. I had a theory that you had to live where there was two forms of public transport. Uh, just lived in Hawthorne. Uh, and uh, I lived in Moorabbin, so we bought this house in Moorabbin. We got married there in September 1959. And uh, it worked out well. We've been married for a long time since. And... Uh, was there resistance from her family because of your blindness? No, none at all. No, they were fine with that. No, uh, her, her brother uh, became a very good friend of mine. Uh, although he didn't live in Melbourne, he lived in the country, and then he went up to Queensland to live. But uh, we 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 remained good friends, and her, her only sister is still alive today. I'm good friends with. She's in a nursing home, and Jess and I go and visit her regularly. So, no, we had no resistance at all there. Uh, Tell us about the wedding. <laughs> well, that's another story. Um, RVIB at the time was running a public appeal, so they came to Jess and I and asked if we'd be prepared to let them take photos of our wedding and show them in the paper as sort of be a good thing for their appeal. And uh, we said, oh, it, but no, and the thing was they would give us a honeymoon in Sydney. Said, well, that sounded good to me, so we said, yep, we'll do that. And... Um, so we got married and they took our photos and it was all on the sun the next day and all that. And um, then the next, uh, on the Monday, um, the guy came and picked us up from the hotel, took us to the airport, put us on a plane, we flew to Sydney. We were met in Sydney by the head of the blindness agency up there, which I knew nothing about at the time, but we did that. And he took us to our accommodation, which was in the newly built married quarters of an elderly blind citizen's hostel. Is that right? (laughs) And the beds were very narrow but they were bolted to the floor, there was two beds and it was rather bleak and that but it didn't matter, we were young and we got out a lot and travelled around and every morning we'd go to breakfast and these old dears would say, did you have a nice night last night dear? And we'd say, oh yes, it was very pleasant. (laughs) (laughs) It's hardly the newlywed suite at the Royal Hilton, is it? Didn't worry us. Oh gosh! Mm. Now, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't long after you were married that um, there were children. Well, yeah, we had children the first year. Um, David, our eldest son, was born. Another fourteen months later, Sylvia, our daughter, was born, and then another six years later, our youngest son was born. So. Um, we only had the three children, and uh, one of the best things we ever did. Uh, they're great kids, and we enjoy them, and their offspring as well. Did you find that as a particular challenge, um, being a father um, who's a blind person, 
how that impacted on your ability in terms of caring for the children or interacting with the children and was there anything to assist you through that learning process? Well, just lived at home, stayed at home um, to raise the family, which was the done thing in those days. Um, and uh, I knew a number of other blind people who were parented, so we talked about things, I suppose. But I'd grown up in a family with younger children. Uh, my um, second sister was 12 years younger than me, and uh, I knew her for two years before I was blinded, so... Uh, I, I was used to children. Um, I used to do my own ironing and that sort of thing before I lost my sight and after, so I could help with the household chores. Um, and Jess was a pretty practical sort of a woman. And uh, so, you know, we, we got through. I suppose we made the same blunders everyone else did, but um, our kids survived. And uh, They did. They did indeed. And they, they learned a, a valuable lesson in life that you have to look after yourself at times. Now, could they get away with stuff? If you were looking after them and Jess wasn't there to um, keep an eye on them, did they work out that there was stuff they could get away with because Dad couldn't see them? Yes, up to a point. But uh, the kids are funny, you know. They, 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 they love to tell on one another. But uh, we had some funny experiences, really. I remember when uh, David would have been about six, I suppose, so Sylvie was four or five, and... Uh, they used to play cricket in the street in those days because you could. They'd bring the old metal rubbish bins would be brought out and that was their wickets. And I was walking home this day and I came round the corner and next thing David and Sylvia come and grab me and said, we'll take your dad and we'll take a hand on it. One and cook one hand each, and next thing, bang! I walk smack into a post. <laughs> well, that was all right. They got around it all right. And young David said, "See, I told you he was blind." <laughs> <laughs> the kids wouldn't believe that I was blind <laughs> yes. in the street, so this was their way of demonstrating. Well, it, it proved it. There's no doubt. <laughs> At, uh, no, we did all those things. Uh, I took, they learned sports. We took them to their various sports. Um, we played. Uh, Later on, they went up to the snow and learned to ski and do things like that. So we we did as much as we could to give them a normal life. Because uh, when we were first married, not everybody had a car. The uh, that wasn't that was before the car boom arrived. So our first uh, five or six years, say ten years, there were less people in the street had cars than had cars. That changed pretty rapidly when it did change, but um, for that first period it didn't. And so all the women knew one another. Um, if you were going to work and you had um, talked, to, you met people on the way, and it's how oh, the wife wasn't too well today, or something like that, you'd make a phone call when you got home, and everyone went round and saw them. And so people did that with us. Uh, people used to pop in and see Jess from time to time, and uh, it was a it was a good time to live in Melbourne. Uh, people were much more aware of one another uh, in the last 10 years where we lived uh, we hardly spoke to the neighbour on one side they they drove in, they drove out you, uh, they didn't see them uh, they, we all travelled different times yeah, whereas a- in the early days uh, we all met, we walked down the street together I recall when the, the um, cyclone hit Darwin one of the reporters for the the Sun newspaper at the time lived in that area. I used to meet him going to work. We used to travel together so quite often. 
he he asked me what how I was going and I told him and he, he came and did a story on the family when they all came down. There was nineteen of them came down from Darwin. And um, Nineteen of your family. Yeah. They were evacuated out of Darwin and and well, no, there were there was twelve from Darwin. There was seven of them came over from Adelaide, but they were all part of the family. And uh, we uh, met, and he did a story on them, and that. So that's how you knew people by those days. So yeah, yeah. You all travel on the train together. When I used to travel on the train to RVIB, we had a guy who was an upholsterer in the railways. We had two people who worked for Keith Courtney Suits, making suits. We had a guy who worked for the trade department. And we had a chap who worked for Craven A, um, the cigarette people delivering cigarettes. Well, the discussions that used to happen every morning in the old red train, because you sat together in those trains, and uh, this guy who was in the trade, he was in for duck shooting in the duck shooting season, so you know, you'd have to step over all the feathers to get out of the train, or the number of suits that would get made <laughs> on the way to work, people talking about their jobs. People used to get, make sure they were in the next car apartment so they could hear the discussion. Is that right? <laughs> it was fantastic. Uh, and we all went together on the train. I used to get off at uh, Paran, and someone got off at Windsor, and others went into the city. So, you know, things were very different then than what they are now. Mm. So, David, with the um, the move down to Melbourne um, by your family, uh, was that both your mother and father that came down? No, my father passed away in 1965. Um, we'd been to Darwin several times. He'd never been to Melbourne to see the children. We'd been to Darwin twice before he passed away, and uh, so he, they did know him. But my mother had come down several times um, and she came down with my two sisters and their children when uh, the cyclone hit Darwin. And David, you had described a time with your father when he was struggling with your injury and with your blindness Um, and he was finding, uh, it sounded like he was finding it difficult to understand the life that you were going to have as a blind person. Now, by this stage, he's seen you develop um, as a worker, develop a career, a family, a wife, children. Do you think this made a difference to him in terms of how he he could see your your the way your life was going to be? Yes, um, I think the move to Melbourne was the, the best thing I did. Um, when I went to Brisbane, mum, my mother came down and she saw the workshops and she stayed in Brisbane for a couple of weeks after I started there and she'd come out a couple of times and seen it. And she went back to my father and told him that we were, I was happy and he couldn't understand that. He just said, there's no way known he can be happy. He can't see. He's blind. He's got to live with all those other blind people. And he got to... He couldn't, you know, he, he just couldn't come to grips with that. Sure. But... Um, as time went on, um, I used to come home on holidays uh, and uh, talk about different things. And, of course, the fact that I'd got tied up with the union, that helped. Uh, the fact that I was on the Queensland Trades and Labor Council, that helped. Um, and then my father, um, he uh, he lost a leg. He'd had this serious trouble with his leg. He'd been wo- wounded in the First World War and... Uh, he um, had this trouble every year with his leg and uh, anyway eventually it came up that it was an abscess inside the ankle which was never diagnosed and it burst out and he actually lost his leg below the knee and I think that 
really changed his thinking about me. I mean, he he was obviously proud of what I was doing, but he was one of those old school blokes that didn't tell you too much. Um, but when he lost his own leg and he realised that he had to get on with his life, you know, he, he just couldn't sit around and do nothing, uh, although he had a wheelchair, but he also had a prosthesis, but he was never good on that prosthesis because they weren't that good in those days anyway. And... Uh, he, he learned to manage those things and we had a couple of talks afterwards about these things and uh, when he when he passed away I think he passed away very happy with the, the way I was managing my life and where it was going the fact that I'd uh, moved out into my own business uh, or working for a company like that um, I, I you know just those things came about that life changed things and I don't think he ever he ever recovered from the fact that he virtually lost a son um, in some ways because there was no doubt about it that we would have run a business together and uh, it was something that was his lifelong dream mm. and it unfortunately I think my brother suffered because of it because I don't think my father was ever able to give as much to him because he didn't want the disappointment again. You know. I understand. Mm. Yeah. And were you the first, um, the first of his kids to give him grandchildren? Oh no, no, no. We were. Oh th- yes, I was. Sorry, we were. Yes. Because mm. that that can help a lot. Yeah. 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 When we took our two kids up there, they were probably three and one at the time, and uh, yeah, you know he had his wheelchair at that stage, and. Uh, they used to sit on his wheelchair. He'd wheel Is that right? And, uh, you know, he was great like that. And, uh, and of course, John, my youngest brother, who was 20 years younger than me, um, you think, you see, my mother was only 19 when I was born, and uh, I think that changed his life a lot too. You know, he had this little boy, and he, he just idolised him, and they idolised one another, actually. And uh, so there were things like that that made a lot of changes in our lives. But I'm sure my father died very happy with where all his kids were, and particularly with myself. Mm. Um, at this point in your life, the um, the food processing uh, section is going to close down, as you you mm. foreshadowed earlier. Mm. The uh, changes in um, in manufacturing, mm. um, and um, you move out into a um, into looking for and obtaining mainstream employment and um, I think that's going to be an excellent point for us to pick up uh, in our next episode good